0: Let's, uh, with that in mind, let's talk about judgment. Uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> <laughs> Revelation, we're going to start in chapter 6. Um, so go ahead and turn there, or I encourage you to at least be able to see Revelation chapter 6. Like on most occasions, we're going to do our best to put most of the uh, references for you on the big screen this morning. Uh, let me quickly reset the compass for where we are. So last week, John the Apostle is caught up into the heavenly throne room, and he sees this dramatic uh, scene unfold. John sees a throne, and around the throne and before the throne, John sees a variety of heavenly occupants who are worshipping the one that is seated upon the throne, who of course is God the Father. But John sees four living creatures, which we defined as cherubim. He sees 24 elders who we said were most likely representatives of redeemed humanity, John sees an innumerable company of angels. He says in chapter 5, verse 11, that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, just an innumerable number. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 12, he speaks of every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. And all these occupants, (laughs) are doing one thing. They are all declaring the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain, who again, of course, we saw is Jesus Christ. Why is the Lamb so worthy? Two things. First, he created all things, chapter 4, verse 11, and by his will they exist. But secondly, the Lamb is worthy, chapter 5, verse 9, he was slain and redeemed mankind to God by his blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, what is the Lamb worthy to do? Well, in the hand of the one seated upon the throne, who again is God the Father, John sees a seven-sealed scroll. And we talked a lot about what the contents of this scroll might be, but probably the most likely idea is what William Barclay suggests, that this scroll contains God's last will and testament, his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. John Walvoord writes, Roman law required that a will be sealed seven times, as illustrated in the wills left by Augustus and Vespasian. This seven-sealed scroll, therefore, is the comprehensive program of God culminating in the second coming of Christ. So the Lamb takes this scroll and all of Revelation... Then from the book of Revelation. Now before anybody leaves, right? Don't misunderstand. We're certainly going to look at Bible passages. But I just think there is merit. Before we dig into the verse by verse of Revelation chapter six forwards, I want to spend time talking about how this book is construct- constructed. Because I think knowing this will become extremely helpful. Again, from this point forward in the book of Revelation. The heart here is, and I hope everybody understands this, I really want people to understand the Bible, right? That's my jam. I just love it when people really understand the Bible. And with just a little bit of work, we can. We can tap into something that is hugely important when it comes to this particular book. A professor by the name of Peter Gentry, who holds a Ph.D. in Septuagint and Near Eastern literature. He teaches Old Testament at Southern Theological Seminary. He writes this, We cannot critique ancient Eastern texts using principles of literary analysis based on modern Western literature. You see, up till now, everything that we have talked about in the book of Revelation has pretty much been happening sequentially or chronologically. It's all taking place in a straight line. But from this point forward, much of what we're going to read about is not happening sequentially. It's not happening chronologically. It is, in fact, happening simultaneously. It's happening at the same time. We're going to call this this morning the different camera angles of the book of Revelation. This really isn't that difficult of a concept to wrap our heads around if we use a couple of simple comparisons. When we watch a movie, everybody knows what a movie is, right? Okay, when we watch a movie, we know that the camera angle switches perspective, right, It's stuff is filmed from different angles. Here's a list of the most common types of camera angles that are used in filmmaking. You've got the extreme wide shot, you've got the wide shot, the mid shot, the two shot, the medium close up, the close up and the extreme close up. Now in the interest of time, let's just talk about a couple of these. Here's a wide shot. Okay, If this is used at the beginning of a trailer, right? Or if it's used at the beginning of a film, or even if it's used at the beginning of a particular scene in a film, sometimes it's called an establishing shot. The purpose of the establishing shot is to orient or establish for the viewer an immediate sense of where you are and where the the action is gonna take place. So if we saw this as an establishing shot, we would know what immediately? That we're in the city of San Francisco, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Then you have the mid shot. Okay, the mid shot, you're a little closer on the action. And it usually comes after some kind of wide shot or establishing shot. And it helps us know that our focus is now going on to a couple of characters or a particular story element. So in a shot like this, we would know, okay, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader are about to duke it out, right? Or that Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed are about to go at it. Then you have the close-up. And the close-up lets you know that there is something very specifically happening with or related to a particular character or a particular story element. So, something like this, we know that Frodo has got an important decision to make about the ring. Okay, then there's the extreme close-up and in the extreme close-up this is really meant to draw your attention to a particular detail so in this shot without any words of detail we know immediately that our focus is on the ring the ring is up to something and in most movie experiences the story is told by, is told by carefully crafting together all these different angles To point the viewer to a particular story element. We call it editing. And for this, there's even different types of uh, camera lenses. You have the wide angle lens, you have a telephoto lens, you have a zoom lens or a macro lens. Even most of our phones, most of our phones, have this type of capability built into it nowadays. Now, another way of thinking of this might be an inset on a map. An inset on a map is a smaller map, or it's a portion of the image that is magnified for the purpose of revealing specific details. The book of Revelation is constructed just like this. In some of these chapters, John is going to give us a wide, he's going to use a wide angle lens to give us a wide shot. He's going to establish something for us. But then in other chapters, John's going to swap the wide angle lens for a zoom lens, and he's going to push in close up on particular story details. For instance, Revelation chapter six begins with the opening of the first seal. And the whole chapter presents one seal opening after the other. And it can to look towards the end of chapter six and we'll start reading in verse 12, John says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. (coughs) Excuse me. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. Now the end of that chapter certainly seems like a culmination of events. Specifically, the mentioning of the great day of God's wrath. Throughout scripture, when you see phrases like the day of the Lord, or the great day, or the day of God's wrath, those are references that are typically taken to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which happens at the end of the great tribulation. So how do we find the end of the great tribulation so early on In the book of Revelation. This is where David, in considering how the seals and the trumpets and the bowls relate to one another, some believe they're sequential. But there are problems with the sequential approach. For example, are the people of Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17, which is what we just read, mistaken about Jesus' return? They don't seem to be. So in chapter six, John uses a wide-angle lens to provide a wide shot, an established shot of the Great Tribulation. But then, in chapter 7, what does John do? John swaps for a zoom lens and provides a close-up of the 144,000. 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel who were specifically sealed to survive the Great Tribulation. But here's what that means. They're alive during the events of chapter 6. Now in chapters 8 through 9 John switches back to a wide angle lens and he provides us with another overview of the Great Tribulation in the seven seven trumpet judgments. These are most likely describing the exact same events of the seal judgments of chapter 6, they're just being described from a slightly different viewpoint, and they emphasize different details. Different viewpoint, and they emphasize different details. Chapter 10, what happens? John switches to a zoom lens. In fact, in chapter 11, we could say John provides an extreme close-up of two characters known as the two witnesses. And we read about specific details and action that's related to their ministry, but again, it takes place during... The Great Tribulation, which was overviewed in chapter 6 and overviewed in chapters 8 through 9. And interestingly again, notice this. Revelation chapter 11 ends with what seems to be another description of the culmination of events. I'll put it up on the big screen. Revelation 11 verse 15 says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 19 says, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. Much of the exact same imagery that's used at the end of chapter 6. Now, in chapter 12, John gives us an extreme wide shot. Okay, this would be like a director using a 70-millimeter anamorphic lens, right, which is designed to squeeze a bunch of detail into a limited space. John provides us with this panoramic view of all of human history, all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, bringing us up to the midpoint of the Great Tribulation. But in chapter 13, he's back on the zoom lens, Right, And we focus in on the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet, the beast from the earth. Chapters 15 and 16, guess what? It's another wide shot. John's back on the wide-angle lens, and we read about the seven bowl judgments, which, like the trumpet judgments, seem to describe the exact same events of the seal judgments. In chapter 6, They just describe it from a slightly different angle. Once again, these chapters conclude with what seems to be a description of the culmination of the Great Tribulation. I'll just read it to you. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17 says Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven and from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises, and thunderings, and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the, and the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. <clears throat> then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, or a hundred pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of that hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And since John mentions Great Babylon in verse 19, is it any wonder that in the next chapter, he's back on the Zoom lens, right? And he focuses in on a specific character, this mysterious woman referred to as the mother of harlots in chapter 17, verse 5. And then in chapter 18, he focuses in on the downfall of commercial Babylon. Now, Chances are we hear this and we think, gosh, this is really confusing, but not really if you think about it in the same context as you would a film and how different camera angles are used to show us different story elements from different angles and serve the action and overall story. That's exactly what's going on in the book of Revelation. John's simply swapping camera angles, zooming in and zooming out, focusing on different details. If you've ever seen a film, and, and if you watch older films, you'll notice this. When they, er, the early days of film work was kind of based off of stage plays. And so they would use just a locked shot, just a single camera angle to show a lot of the action. And somebody else to show a lot of the action. And somebody will enter the room from over here and walk over and start talking to this person. And it's just a lot of action from, or a lot of information happening from one angle. But when you compare that to how films are made nowadays, it's really kind of boring. Because it's just kind of this static locked shot. As opposed to being able to film close up and zoom in and zoom out. And like really draw your attention to different elements. Let me make another comparison here. I wanna talk for just a moment about the differences in modern literature and ancient Hebrew writing. When we write something today, we have a tendency to write, um, we can use all kinds of automated methods for emphasizing something. Um, For instance, if I put this sentence on the big screen, right? I could utilize the functions of bolding something to provide emphasis. Or I could underline something to provide emphasis. I could italicize something. Or I could use all caps. And actually, depending on what part of the sentence you emphasize, it can change the meaning. If I say, Pastor Kevin is the best Bible teacher on the entire planet, okay, what that means is no one is better. If we say, Pastor Kevin is the best Bible teacher on the entire planet Earth, we know that Pastor Henry and Pastor Mallet aren't, right? Because we're talking about Pastor Kevin. If we emphasize that Pastor Kevin is the best Bible teacher on the entire planet Earth, may not be able to teach anything else, right? But he can teach the Bible. If we say Pastor Kevin is the best Bible teacher on the entire planet Earth, we know that nobody else in the world, if we say Pastor Kevin is the best Bible teacher on the entire planet Earth, It's possible there's somebody on another planet who might be able to teach the Bible. By the way, this is a little exercise called contrastive stress. Now, the writers of the Bible didn't have all these automated methods to emphasize different points, right? If you were writing the Bible, how would you go about emphasizing something without using bold print or without underlining something or without the ability to italicize something? or write it in all caps. One of the primary ways the biblical writers would emphasize something is by repeating it. One author writes, repetition is so uncommon in the English language that it's underlined in red in Microsoft Word. This is not the case in biblical Hebrew. Author Michael Cascione in his book, Repetition in the Bible writes, as an archeological artifact, the Bible employs repetition as a highly developed Hebraic genre. And so here's what that means. When you see the Bible repeating certain words or phrases or ideas, we should immediately lock in on it. Here's a simple example. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Here's a single sentence, and here's what it reads. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see how in that one sentence it is stressed three times that God was the one who created men and women, that he created mankind. Daniel chapter 3 is an amazing example of this. By the way, these are just a couple of examples. In one chapter, you have the idea of the image which Nebuchadnezzar set up repeated ten times. Now we we hear that and we go, well, I don't understand what's the big deal. But if you read it, and I'm just going to take some verses and condense them down to kind of illustrate the point. In verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. He set it up in the plain of Dura. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded that you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So at that time, all the people worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In verse 12, Nebuchadnezzar is told, there are certain Jews who do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true that you do not worship the gold image which I have set up? And they said, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not worship the gold image which you have set up. You see what I'm saying? It's like, Okay, so what you're saying is King Nebuchadnezzar set up an image, right? I mean, you kind of get the point through the repetition. Last week in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we see the the four living creatures flying around the throne. You remember what they're saying? Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah chapter 6, exactly the same. In Hebrew, it's kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. The Jewish Theological Seminary of America writes. What does kedosh 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 mean? Most translations have something like holy, holy, holy. But our approach adds new meaning to the repetition, rendering it holy in every way or infinitely holy. This happens to be the understanding of the Targum, which adds that God is holy in the heavens, holy on the earth, and holy for all eternity. God is holy in every conceivable way. David Guzik writes, in the Hebrew language, intensity is communicated by repetition. To say that the Lord is holy says something. To say that the Lord is holy, holy says far more. But to say that the Lord is holy, holy, holy is to declare his holiness in the highest possible degree. Now, just to kind of expound upon this idea of repetition, when we write or tell a story in our culture, we typically tell it in a linear fashion, meaning the story moves from point A to point B to point C and so on and so forth. But in the ancient writing style of Hebrew literature, that was not always the case. A lot of times in Hebrew literature, a writer would write out to a certain point and then pause and before going any further, they would rewind and tell the same account again, but this time filling in different details. It's called the resumptive manner. And I kid you not, last night, this was not planned. Last night, I'm I'm in bed, I'm trying to go to sleep, and I have such a difficult time switching my brain off at night. I know you probably can't imagine that. So I always have to watch something to help myself fall asleep. And I start watching this movie, and it's a mystery thriller. And it's bopping along. And then about halfway through the movie, suddenly it seems like the narrative completely changes. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is going on? And then the more I watched the movie, I realized, oh, they're telling the exact same events again, now from a different character's perspective. And I was like, this is exactly what the book of Revelation does. It's pretty cool. It's a great modern-day example of this. Now, a classic example of this from the Bible is found in the first two chapters of the Bible, right? Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 begins, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of chapter 1 is providing a summary of God's creative efforts. Towards the end of chapter 1, here's what we read. God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so, we just read this a moment ago, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Boom. God creates man. Okay, then you come to Genesis chapter 2, and what do you read? Genesis 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, wait a second. I thought we just read a moment ago in chapter 1 that God created man. In fact, we just read that God created male and female in Genesis chapter 1, and yet in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So the question becomes, did God create the man and woman in Genesis chapter 1 or did God create the man and the woman in Genesis chapter 2? The answer is yes. It's a repeated account of the same event. And it's written in this ancient writing style of the Hebrews of writing out to a certain point, then stopping, rewinding, and writing the account again, this time filling in different details. Again, Professor Peter Gentry writes this Genesis chapter 2, the so called second account of creation, corresponds well to the normal pattern of Hebrew narrative to consider a topic in a resumptive manner. The approach in ancient Hebrew literature is to take up a topic and develop it from a particular perspective and then stop and take up the same theme again from another point of view. This pattern is kaleidoscopic and recursive. Genesis chapter two is in fact devoted to further development of the ideas broached in the sixth paragraph of the first account, and so adds to the significance of the creation of mankind. In Genesis chapter 2, the author steps back in the sequence to focus on the sixth day when God made mankind. By considering the two accounts individually and then reconciling them, we see that God describes the sequence of creation in Genesis chapter 1 then clarifies its most important details in Genesis chapter 2. There is no contradiction here, merely a common literary device describing an event from the general to the specific. David Guzik writes, the details in the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 teach us something. After reading Genesis chapter 1, we might have assumed that the man and the woman were made at the same time. But the text doesn't specifically say so. We assume it. We don't know the details about man's creation until Genesis chapter 2. And that's true. It's not until Genesis chapter 2 that we learn of God forming the man of the dust of the ground. Or we read of the Lord breathing into man's nostrils and man becoming a living being. We don't read about any of that in Genesis chapter 1. So, to bring this all back to the book of Revelation suddenly the idea of john providing an overview of the great tribulation in the seal judgments in chapter 6 and then pausing and rewinding and then providing another overview of the great tribulation in the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9 and then pausing rewinding and then providing another overview of the great tribulation in the bowl judgments of chapter 16 Suddenly, it makes sense. It was a common writing style in John's day. In fact, Leon Morris writes, this is typical of John's method. He goes over the ground again and again, each time teaching us something new. And it helps us understand why we see passages at the end of chapter 6 and at the end of chapter 11 and at the end of chapter 16, that all seems so similar. They all mention thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and hail and the islands being removed and the heavens being opened. They all seem to convey the end or the culmination of the Great Tribulation. It's because John is showing us the same event, but from a different camera angle. In closing, I refer once again to the great theological example of Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. 1984 classic, right? Indiana Jones is out. I mean, the, the, the climax of the movie is there's this rope bridge that's suspended across this chasm, and Indiana Jones is there, and he's with Willie, and he's with Short Round, right? And they're on the run from Molaram, sularam, right? And. Uh, This is before the days of CGI. There wasn't a lot of computer-generated graphics, which means they were going to do this stunt one time. And they had eight cameras rolling to get this one shot. I'm going to let Steven Spielberg and his crew describe how they worked this out. The moment on
1: all of the films that I think was the most crystallizing for all of us was the moment we cut the red bridge on indiana Jones and the temple of doom the bridge was strung on steel hawsers across this canyon and for the bridge to cut uh, george gibbs who was the special effects guy on that had the whole thing rigged with some form of electrically detonated charges that had to cut four steel horses that were through them it was an exciting sequence. Steven wanted all the cameras he could get, so naturally the second unit worked with him. And George Lucas was on the set, and so that gave us another good man behind the camera. Well, so far let's review the cameras, we've got Eric with Airy a 40. With 40. We've got the Panavision going about 48 frames a second up there with maybe a 50. Uh-huh. We got Garrett with Garrett the Steadicam, with Steadicam up there, and we'll shoot that probably be a
0: 75. Mm-hmm. So that's one, two, three cameras. Mm-hmm. One down there is four, this division on the bridge is five, six will be on that side, and we have two more to play with.
1: But that moment, every camera we had is pointed at the bridge from every angle that we possibly might need, and those are the moments where you stand, because I'm going, what if three of the horses goes and one doesn't? All right, here we go.
0: The bridge had to fall in one shot, in one take, with eight cameras rolling on it, and have it uh, work. Which is always a terrifying moment when they go three, two, one, they hit the button, does it work? Action.
1: And it went, and it was perfect. Now, those moments are like incredible because it's one go. If we'd blown it, I think it'd have had to be in some ILM fix because I. Never have it, it was impossible. Oh, no! 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 Ah!
0: Ah! See, when we watch a film, we see the finished product. I always, whenever Steven Spielberg's going, we got one cam, we got three cameras over there, and we got one down there. I, I, am thinking that must have been what it was like for John the Apostle to write the Book of Revelation, right? He's going, okay, this got one, ca- this chapter is this camera angle, and, and this this camera is there, this chapter is this camera angle, and th- this is this camera. That's and here we are nowadays. Here we are. We're basically reviewing all the footage, right? We're watching the the dailies, so to speak. Because John has written it all down, and now we have the advantage of being able to to put it all together. And what's so cool about this, like if we really get this, it makes studying the book of Revelation so much more pleasurable because you're not suddenly trying to approach it in a straight line. You're going, oh, that's happening at the same time this is happening, and that's happening. And suddenly you can kind of stack it all on top of each other, and it just begins to help make a little bit more sense. And what's cool about it too is that we get to see every detail. We we get to see it all as it plays out. Anyway, okay, that's where we're gonna stop today. Let me encourage you to do this. Let me encourage you to come out and join us on Wednesday nights for deeper revelation. I don't know if you know that what we do there is we take each Sunday's Bible study and we sit around and, and we dig into it deeper. And we have been having a fantastic time doing this. People always come up to me and they go, does anybody come to that? Um, yeah, like so We there's been about 25 people there on Wednesdays. Um, and then Pastor Henry, if, Wednesday, if nighttime's not a good time, Pastor Henry has a group on Wednesday mornings at 10, and he's got about 15 people. So it's exciting to me to see about 40 people in our church getting together on a weekly basis, talking about, the passage that we're studying together as a church on Sundays. It's very, very exciting, so I encourage you to join us for that. And then go ahead, read ahead into chapter 6, because when Easter is done, we're going to resume looking at the seven seals.